This week I had um, brought back to mind a sermon that a friend of mine had preached a number of years ago, and it had to do with the movement of Israel and the delivery that they experienced from slavery in Egypt, and that after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, it was easier actually to take the Israel out of slavery than it was to take the slavery out of Israel. And in fact, what it required was 40 years in the wilderness so that an entire new generation who didn't know slavery could come and arrive at a point where they could enter the promised land afresh and more fully be the people of God. That message came back to mind in a conversation I was having with someone about the growing sense of fatigue in the season of life that has felt like a little bit of a desert season. And it was such a fresh reminder to me, an oasis of sorts, that in the midst of the wilderness places where God takes us, it's often the time where life isn't actually put on pause or hold or just waiting for the next new move of God. But that is its own move. And so in this season kind of of purging, we've been trying to take time this semester to go back and and look and pull apart all the different parts of of who we are and how we relate to one another and to God's creation and, and societal issues and sexual issues and spiritual issues. And I am so excited that in the next two weeks we're going to have two amazing guests come and lead us on campus in chapel. Next week, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who I would regard as the most important voice in America today leading conversations around how Christians should engage with truth and grace around questions pertaining to LGBTQ issues. So I am excited. This was delayed a whole year because of COVID for him coming to campus. So he's going to come and share in chapel next week, Wednesday, and then offer a two and a half hour workshop next week, Wednesday night in this space from 7 to 9.30, free to every student at Dort. Come on in. And we just want to walk through um, a teaching with you of how we can engage these conversations in respectful ways, in loving ways, in ways where we cling to what we believe God is telling us and not merely our culture, and come back to the place where we're founded and shaped by Him, and how to do that in the most effective and loving and listening ways. And I think he's better at that than anybody else I've ever read or encountered. I know a number of you have read his books last year in small groups here. And so he's going to be here on campus next week, Wednesday. Um, Dr. Preston Sprinkle leads the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He's a best-selling author, and um, we're going to have a great time with him here on campus. In fact, we even are inviting all area pastors to come and join us um, for a lunch with him right after chapel, and then you guys all get your turn in the evening. The following week, Reverend John Agege, who's a multi-denominational chaplain in Houston's Fourth Ward, and has kind of dedicated his life into that community and ministering to people. And this is the neighborhood, of course, of George Floyd's um, birth and childhood. And out of that context and out of that history is going to come and talk about how we can engage a critical conversation and really, really important issues around how we as Christians need to think about racial justice. And now again, from a biblical standpoint, from the teaching of Scripture and from the weight that we give, us, give it in our lives and not merely from what culture says so that we can lead those rather than simply be reactive in them. So I'm super excited. These are some of the most important conversations. I've also been told in numerous surveys that when we don't engage the most important conversations, these are the things that undermine Gen Z's faith the most, that you need a faith that can speak into the hardest places in the world today. And so we're trying to equip you 
with the best voices that we can find, and I'm super excited about that in the coming weeks. We're just saying, I surrender. So as we come now back before God's word, I ask you to pray that with me, that we would surrender our presuppositions and our own desires and our own thoughts and our own wants and our own sins before the only one who can make them right. Will you pray with me? Father, we are on a journey in pursuit of full surrender, in a path of discipleship that begins with self-denial. And so, Lord, we ask that in this strange process of emptying ourselves, that we would be filled back to overflowing with the dreams and aspirations that you have, that we would live into the fullness of our humanity, the best possible reflection of your character in the world. And that when the world sees us, they would see you. Lead us there today again. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of reminder, we've been walking through this series in pursuit of fullness, sort of spending a week pulling each of these apart, and it's all founded on the premise of Jesus' sort of mission statement that he has come, that we would have life and have it to the full, that the experience of following Jesus is a movement towards a greater expression of our own humanity, because it's a greater expression of our image-bearing in God. And that all the commands that the Father has ever given us have only ever invited us, not just into self-denial, but into self-denial that leads to a greater fulfillment than we could ever accomplish on our own. It's a laying down of our own dreams and ambitions in order to create more space for His, which are always better and always fuller and bigger than what we could ever want for ourselves. So as we round this circle, another way of talking about it is sort of looking at this overall summary of all the commands to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's pull these apart and look at aspects of our strength and of our heart and of our mind and of our soul and what it looks like to truly give these all the way over to Jesus. And today we want to talk about um, finances and about wealth. And about what it means to take this part of who we are and lay it before God in an act of worship. Let's start here. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Notice the possessive nature already declared to us in some of the earliest texts in Scripture that all of this is God's. But we're invited in. And one of the greatest characteristics of God himself is generosity. And so to become like God, to become an effective disciple, is to become more generous. You are called to live on a path of ever-increasing generosity. I had a roommate, or sorry, not a, one of my roommate's close friends who I also hung out with at Dort when we graduated. And I remember him telling me in the first year after graduation, this is 20 years ago now, 
He said, I'm going to start in my first job with tithing because I think it's like the training wheels of giving. And then every year I'm going to add 1% of my income um, and see how far I can go. He's 20 years out now. So he's at, I don't know, 30-some percent now of everything he gets giving, and he told me that he still hasn't even felt the effects of it yet. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? A way to think about moving through life differently than what we typically do? To consider our wealth as something before God is to consider a reorientation of our priorities and aspirations and dreams. It's also an acknowledgement of a right standing of how we truly understand the things around us. Because there's this process that we all subtly go through where we begin to believe the things that we hold on to long enough actually become ours. I want to show you how inappropriate that would be. Imagine a um, mailman's coming to my house. He's got a letter with us, and you can tell there's a check inside, and it's made out to me. Um, but on the way, he just decides, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to pocket this one for myself. I know, it, I know it says his name, Aaron's name on it, but you know, Whatever. And every once in a while, he just sort of does this. He's just, you know, taking it for himself. What a violation of the principle altogether. That, that gift was from something else dedicated to someone else. That postal worker is merely a carrier of that from one destination to another. At no point in time is he allowed to assume that, that whatever is in those envelopes and the contents therein or the money contained within it is theirs. For us to do that with the wealth of this world and assume that at any point in time it either says something about us or is actually ours is a violation of Scripture. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And I'm being asked to steward and tend it. Like a mail carrier taking resources from the kingdom of heaven from one place to another. And so with that in mind, I want to I go back and just help you understand like, how important this is and how much Jesus talked about wealth and money and how much this actually spans the entire breadth of Scripture because I want to suggest before you that the Bible probably insinuates that the greatest single threat to our faith and our salvation and our witness isn't a current cultural topic on sexuality or anything else but it is wealth. Jesus seemed to be obsessed with this, and so was the Bible. Already in the Old Testament, there are over 60 references to tithing or first fruits. When the first festivals of, of religious um, beginnings happen in the Old Testament, two out of the three require, were all based around giving and bringing first fruits. The foundation of worship wasn't preaching initially, it was giving. The central liturgical act in worship was really the offering. It was an orientation of heart towards the things of God. It's a recognition that this isn't mine to begin with, it's actually yours, and I only find my place in the world when I find my place in your world, not mine. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables in the New Testament are on wealth. One out of every six verses in the synoptic Gospels are on wealth. Jesus speaks about wealth and money and its threat more than sin and more than love. 
You know, for a guy who didn't have a lot of it, Jesus seems pretty obsessed with money, doesn't he? Why? Is it perhaps that there's no greater threat to our faith than the love of money? Which apparently is the root of all evil. A few more stats. Think about this. Jesus talks about money five times more than prayer. It's 113 references in those teachings to wealth. 97 to being rich. And 176 references to the poor. There is an, something about an examination of the heart of God itself when we see what his son was so intent on teaching us about. And so fearful that if he didn't, what might happen to us in our salvation? Now I want to show you to the within Scripture, this is why there's some pretty hard-hitting passages on the way that we steward and manage wealth and our dreams around it. Because it's probably the single greatest thing that would potentially trip you up in faith and distort our relationships. I'll give you just a, a, a one quick example. For any of you in this room one day who would get married, statistically speaking, you are more likely to survive an affair in your marriage than you are a bankruptcy. Think about that for a second. That money is more threatening to our relationships in that way than even infidelity. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what are we fixing our gaze upon? Now I want to challenge you pretty hard for a minute. Like as you think about your life unfolding and what opportunities are going to come because of the education you're acquiring, I mean, are our lives more interested and more obsessed with, are we thinking and daydreaming more about the next car that we want or, or a house at the lake than we are alleviating poverty for our neighbors? Because if we are, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, there's some reorientation work that needs to happen inside of us. Let's be honest. Let me give you an example of some of these hard-hitting pieces. Command those who are rich. And I want you to hear this well, okay? Our temptation in every single one of us here is to be like, geez, I wish Jeff Bezos was in the room. But this isn't about what you want to imagine as somebody else. It's so easy to pick somebody else higher up and more wealthy than you are. But let's get this straight, okay? You and I are part of the largest economy the world has ever seen. We have more opportunity and more wealth than anybody who has ever lived before us. And for a billion people in the world who make less than $2 a day, we are Jeff Bezos. So when it says command those who are rich, it's not talking about the guy who actually has more wealth than you. This is us. Right between the eyes. Command those who are rich, like all the students at Dort University, in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly 
life. Notice why God is so passionate about this. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God's not asking you to go without everything. He's just saying that unless you're generous, you won't even be able to enjoy fully what you have or why I gave it to you in the first place. And I want you to do all of this so that you can take hold of the life that is truly life. Because there is no life that is truly life without generosity. To become a better follower of Jesus is to become more generous. And that isn't a future tense command. If you want to be a person who is generous with finances later in life is that you begin to move out of a different stage than you are now. Because most of you are thinking, I have student debt. I have more debt in this world than I have assets. I have no idea why you're preaching this sermon to me, Aaron. But the spiritual muscles of generosity that you are cultivating now, be it with your time, your compliments, your kindness, the sharing of the things that you do have that are material, with all people around you, that will be a directly transferable skill into adulthood and into independence. That if we are not generous people now, living out stage one in the parable of the talents, it's hard to believe that suddenly we're going to be able to flip a switch one day and then become generous people. Because the reality is, the more people make and the more that Christians make, percentage-wise, the less that they give. And because so much is not being done as a result of that, the world is missing out on the opportunity that we could give it. Edmund Burke once said, bad things happen when good things don't. Right? Like, when we're not tithing, when we're not giving, when we're not being generous to the full extent that we can, the world is not experiencing the blessing that God designed it to experience. And we're not experiencing the fullness of our own humanity. To become more generous is to become more human. We have so many complaints about the way that the church operates today, and I I hear more negative comments and criticism about the institutional church than I hear positives. Do you know that people living right now in the largest economy in the world, that churches in America create budgets based on the assumption that people will only give 3 to 4% of their income? Imagine our churches all being three times more effective in their communities and three times the witness that we are if we would just put on the training wheels of biblical giving and start with tithing. So much is not getting done because we're not being faithful. Could the witness of the church really triple if we would just start with obedience? Jesus is so clear on this, right? No one can serve two masters. He's like, let's just get this off the table. There's, there's a, there isn't a syncretism here between you being wealthy and accumulating massive wealth and sort of imagining that as the goal of your life and the ambition of what you're shooting for and love God because these two things are hard to reconcile. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Detestable. Why? Because wealth in and of itself is wrong? No. 
But if it becomes something that orients the decision-making in our lives on a day-to-day basis more than helping a fellow image-bearer, that is detestable to God. It's disgusting. So we live in the wealthiest country the world has ever known. And I'm not even talking about the far-flung places now of the earth. I'm talking about here. One in seven children in America struggle from food insecurity issues. 11 million children in America today don't know if they're going to get three meals today because of the poverty that is theirs. And that's inside the largest economy the world's ever known. My friends, that is on me, and that is on you, and if the dreams of our lives are not about eliminating statistics like that, and instead about the next material thing that we hope to accumulate, we need a heart renovation. This is one of the hardest texts in all of Scripture on this. It's from the book of James, which is all about putting faith into action, right? Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I really wish this passage wasn't in the Bible. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Ouch. And what I, why I wanted to include this text for you. You guys, there are so many of you in this room and listening online right now who in very short order are going to be people responsible for other people in this world. You will start businesses and hire people. You will make profits and you will increase staffing. You will be given positions of privilege and responsibility and there will be many who will report to you. And if we were to add up all the people here and all the people listening online and fast forward five years and think of all the people who will be responsible and you will have to steward in this, to think about people not as commodities to accomplish some level of productivity in whatever business you're in, but instead as the greatest treasures in the kingdom of heaven are to who are to be empowered. That's our role and that's our task. And my friends, that's coming in way faster order than any one of you can imagine. And it should be a heavy burden And not heavy in the sense that it weighs you down, but heavy in the sense that it has some weight to it. And it is to be taken seriously. Now I want to go back and just finish with a a quick reflection on this text. It's the one where we get the whole um, greatest teaching in Scripture on tithing to begin with from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, I the Lord do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I love that, right? We're so fickle that we move in and out and we put ourselves in dangerous places, but God's like, I'm not going anywhere. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. This is like the entire message of all the prophets, right? Just come on back. Come on back to right standing with God. Come on back to right relationship with me. But you ask, how are we to return? 
How do we make right? How do we get back to the place of a healthy, proper relationship with you, God? And he asks them back another question. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? And God's response is basically just, well, you can start by giving me back my stuff. You can start by honoring the whole element of finances that I set up when we decided that you were going to be my people. That you were going to do this differently than everybody else in the world because I had a plan in that. That we were going to create a deal that I was going to do more with 90 than you could have done with 100. That you were going to start in a place of tithing and I was going to show you that giving and generosity is an act of faith that I will fill in whatever's not there so you don't have to go out there and get it for yourself because I want to give it to you instead. I want you to experience the fullness of my generosity by creating a vacuum and a space by giving part of wealth back away and back to me. See, money is more about values and faith than it is about money itself. In tithes and offerings, God said, that's how you're doing it. That's how you're robbing me. And now as a result, you've removed yourself from the place of blessing and you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Think of like the modern equivalent of this, like the collection plate going by and you just being like... Right? Like... That's what Jesus, that's what God's saying here in the text. You're robbing me. You're stealing from God when we don't give back to him what is rightfully his. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that churches could make budgets off of actually tithing. Not three to four percent of people's money in the wealthiest economy the world has ever known. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. God had in mind the greatest insurance plan ever for all of humanity. In a world created with enough resources that everybody could live in flourishing. And this is my favorite part of the text. Test me in this, says the Lord. Try me on for size. You guys, you have to understand, the way that this is constructed grammatically is in the emphatic. He says, be sure to test me in this. And then the word testing that's used is a word usually used to describe God's way of examining and testing humanity. This is the only place in Scripture where God actually tells us to test him. Throw it back on me. I know this is hard for your human frail hearts, but try me on for size and see if I won't disappoint you. Because I have in mind for you to be generous and for me to exercise my generosity towards you when you stand in the place of blessing and follow my design for the flourishing of humanity and for all of my creation. Test me in this. Try me on for size. See if I'm joking, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God ain't playing in this text. Not at all. Try me out. And guess what I'll do, he says. Dave Ramsey refers to this verse verse as like the Murphy proofing of the Christian financial plan. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord. 
That when you walk in obedience, you invite me into your life in a new way to provide for you that you could never provide for yourself. And I'm serious about this. I can do more with 90 than you can do with 100. So 90 is actually more than 100 in God's economy. You see what he's inviting us into in this act of faith? And when we don't fully embrace this, it's not just about stealing from ourselves our own humanity. It's also about stealing our witness. And then all the nations will call you blessed. Our giving and our generosity, our tithing and who we are in all of this, is part of the way that we are called to bless the world and actually multiply the witness of our faith. People will be looking at you and how you live your life and in what you buy and in what you drive. And that's not them being judgmental. That's them looking to you for a Christian witness of a life of generosity. As we close today, I just want to ask you all to stand in a parting blessing. And as you do, I want to ask you to do one thing with me. Um, if you have an app on your phone, go ahead, if you've got your phone, pull it out, or if you've got a wallet in your back pocket, you brought a purse with you, I want you to take it, and I want you to put it in your hands in front of you. If you have an app that does for your banking, for your finances that you track, go ahead and open it to that. If you've got cash or credit cards in your wallet or something, hold on to that. Or if you've got a purse with you, Hold it in your hands. May you, the people of God, in the designed reflection of His character, manifest His generosity in your life. May your finances and your wealth be blessed. May you be an instrument of God's delivery to freedom for financial oppression for others. May you steward this dangerous and tempting gift well may God be in and through all of your financial decisions and may your dreams and aspirations be dictated by the brilliance and wisdom of God and not human flesh may this blessing be upon you today and in the days to come go in peace my friends go and be generous amen